and welcome back to the 11th episode of She Existed, the podcast wherein I, Ashlyn Romagnoli, share a brief introduction to a woman of history and or legend previously unknown to me. Keyword there. (laughs) So when making this podcast, I really try to share ladies about whom we have some accounts, but perhaps not enough to fully validate their existence from like a Western scholarly perspective. As you've probably noticed by now, I am particularly intrigued by cultures either from so long ago that we don't have reliable or abundant accounts, uh, by cultures that emphasize oral traditions, and by cultures that have either been absorbed or destroyed by other cultures. Since conquering cultures tend to send soldiers, not scholars, when they are doing their conquering, there's so much lost that exists now only in whispers of myth or third or even fourth-hand accounts. But while we may not be able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that a person in history existed, even the tales of an individual might be influential enough that, well, she may as well have existed. Such is the case with today's subject, Orduja, a supposedly legendary princess from in or around the Philippines. More on that later. And a very quick little aside, so I am returning back to this hemisphere because it is awesome, and also at the moment expressly because of all the horrific racist attacks on Asians and Asian Americans in the U.S. I don't really know what to say about it aside from affirming that systemic racism exists, it's horrific, and we all need to examine how we approach race in our own lives. For my part, I'm a big believer in knowledge and familiarity breeding understanding and acceptance, so maybe in even just the tiniest way sharing the stories of badass historical Asian women from a variety of Asiatic cultures could maybe be helpful. I really hope so. All right, so, Orduja. Okay, well, first, actually, let's talk about the Philippines. Orduja was a princess of Kailukari in the land of Tawalisi. At least, that's what it was called in her time. Many contemporary Filipinos believe that it may have existed in the current province of Pangasinan, although there is some evidence that she may have actually lived on Java, Um, There's some pretty interesting theories there, so we'll get back to that. So, my mind was absolutely blown when I learned that there is evidence of hominins living in the Philippines as early as 709,000 years ago. 709,000! And the earliest modern humans are dated from between 47,000 years ago and 10,000 years ago. So yeah, I mean, like, think how much history happens in one year of your own life and try to extrapolate out from that. It is very hard to do. (laughs) Just imagine how much context, how many stories and loves and lives and scandals we know nothing about. Ugh, it's kind of depressing, actually, when I put it that way. All right, so around 2200 BCE, uh, the Austronesians made their way over to the Philippines and intermarried with... Uh, the local people who were and are part of an ethnic group called Negritos. For context, this is around the same time that the Bronze Age started in China, and the ancestors of the Latins showed up around what would, about 1,500 years after that, become Rome. History is so long. (laughs) Unfortunately, though, despite this long history of human culture in this location, the earliest written record that we have from the Philippines at the moment is from the 1300s. That's 1300 Comet Era, so really not that long long ago from now. Uh, it's called the Laguna Copperplate Inscription, in case you are interested in that. But what it means is that we really don't know a huge, huge amount about the culture from before around that time. Culturally, they were influenced by people who lived in what we now know as China and India, and they seem to have some form of class structure. 
One really interesting tidbit that I just found really fascinating and wanted to share, even though it doesn't have that much to do with what we're talking about today, was from Laura Lee Junker in her book Raiding, Trading, and Feasting, The Political Economy of the Philippine Chiefdoms. So she claimed that mortuary evidence from archaeological digs in and around the Philippines indicates that not a single burial from this complex society development period, which was between about 500 and 1000 CE, yielded osteological proof for violent death, and there are no recorded instances of mass burials. So that's pretty important because it kind of indicates maybe they weren't super, super violent. Now, of course, that could just be that, like, we haven't found it yet, but still, very, very interesting. However, if such a time of peace existed, that seems to have changed after about the year 1000, because by the time Magellan showed up in the Spanish claimed the islands in 1565, the people who lived there were described as being quite warlike, and Uderja certainly had that reputation. So she lived in the 14th century CE, and is commonly depicted as a warrior princess. This doesn't seem to have actually been that uncommon for her people, as a visitor to the land was surprised that, quote, their women ride on horseback and are skillful archers, and fight exactly like men. This description is courtesy one Ibn Battuta, a Berber Moroccan historical figure who started traveling at 21 and just never stopped. For real. He supposedly traveled more than 70,000 miles and is considered to have traveled further than any other pre-jet person. Anyway, he wrote, A masterpiece to those who contemplate the wonders of cities and the marvels of traveling, more commonly known as the Rila and he is the only primary source that I am aware of for Urduja's existence. Urduja was described as having golden bronze skin, straight, shiny, luscious dark hair, and deep, dark-colored eyes, and dressed in gold. Her father was King Tawalisi, after whom the country that they lived in was named, and he appointed her the ruler of the port town of Kalajkarf. She also had a brother, whose name we don't know, but who apparently used to run the town, but was assigned leadership of a different city. So, I do want to pause here and emphasize this point. I know, who cares? She had a brother, so what? So do, like, tons of people. But think about this for a second. She has a brother, and she's still a ruler. That is something special. Because there are, as it turns out, so many examples of badass women in history, but often it's under what I think of as extraordinary or extenuating circumstances. Like, the ruler didn't have any sons and a daughter has to step up, or a woman kicks ass despite all of the oppression around her. And don't get me wrong, I love an underdog story, but there's something really great about a woman being a bold leader just because, well, that's who she was. That it seemed totally normal in her society. That she and her brother appeared to be considered equal. It just feels kind of like a relief, you know? I don't want women to be amazing despite. I want them to be amazing because, if that makes sense. But sadly, for most of recorded history, women have been largely treated like garbage, so we have a lot of amazing despite stories. I'm thrilled to be sharing what seems like an amazing because story instead. Okay, so instead of retelling the story in my own words, because we only have the one primary source, and it's really interesting and rather short, I'm just going to read to you Ibn Battuta's account of Verduja. The day following our arrival at the port of Kalijkarf, this princess summoned the ship's captain and clerk, the merchants and pilots, the commander of the foot soldiers, and the commanders of the archers to a banquet which she had prepared for them, according to her custom. 
The captain wished me to go with them, but I declined because being infidels, it is not lawful to eat their food. Okay, like super quick Ashland side note right here. Apparently, uh, he couldn't eat the infidels' food, but he was totally okay with taking infidels as wives, which he did in almost every place he stayed. I get 70,000 miles this guy traveled. Usually, he divorced them when he was ready to leave. Apparently, with one set of wife and kids, he left and then just, like, showed up 20 years later to see what became of them. Like, thanks, I guess? Okay, well, damn. Whatever. Back to the quote. When they came into her presence, she asked them if there was anyone else of their company who had not come. The captain replied, there is only one man left, a bakshi, that is, a kadi in their tongue, and he will not eat your food. Thereupon she said, call him. So her guards came to me, along with the captain's party, and said, comply with the princess's wish. I went to her then, and found her sitting in full state. On my saluting her, she replied to me in Turkish, and asked me from what land I had come. I said to her, from the land of India. From the pepper country, she asked, and I replied, yes. She questioned me about this land and events there, and when I had answered, she said, I must positively make an expedition to it and take possession of it for myself, for the quantity of its riches and its troops attracts me. I replied, do so. She ordered me to be given robes, two elephant loads of rice, two buffaloes, ten sheep, four pounds of syrup, and four martyrdoms, that is, large jars, filled with ginger, pepper, lemons, and mangoes, all of them salted, these being among the things prepared for sea voyages. The captain told us that this princess has in her army women, female servants and slave girls who fight like men. She goes out in person with her troops, male and female, makes raids on her enemies, takes part in the fighting, and engages in single combat with picked warriors. He told me, too, that during a fierce engagement with certain of her enemies, many of her troops were killed, and they were all but defeated, when she dashed forward and broke through the ranks until she reached the king whom she was fighting, and dealt him a mortal blow with her lance. He fell dead, and his army took to flight. She brought back his head on the point of a spear, and his relatives redeemed it from her for a large sum of money. When she returned to her father, he gave her this town, which had formerly been in her brother's hands. The captain told me also that she is sought in marriage by various princes. But she says, I shall marry none but him who fights and overcomes me in single combat. And they avoid fighting with her for fear of the disgrace if she overcame them. That's it. That's all we have. But pretty great, right? So much to unpack here. First, confirmation that yes, not only did Urduja kick ass, but there were also numerous women in her army. Apparently, the women warriors uh, in this time and place were known as the Kina Lakihan, which I couldn't find anything else out about, which sucks. Secondly, she was generous. That list of snacks made me pause my writing of this episode and make lunch. Third, she was clever. Seriously, it is super smart to, rather than just say, I'm not getting married and have to deal with all the inevitable hemming and hawing and back and forth about why not? It's the best and whatever. And like, if you have ever been an unmarried woman above the age of 22, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You just make it like an unwinnable challenge. Like, oh yeah, no, getting married totally with you. But it's not my fault though. No one will fight me. Well, gotta go win some wars. Bye. I mean, I wish women could just do whatever they want all the time, but that is not the world we live in. So to my single lady listeners who need a break from nagging questions about their relationship status, consider an impossible challenge. Like, uh, you can only marry the man or woman 
Uh, who can recite the entire text of Infinite Jest while popping a wheelie on a BMW K75? And if anyone asks why, just shrug and say, it is known. That should help. Alright, so like I said, Ibn Battuta's account, and by the way, Ibn Battuta apparently means like, son of duckling? They think it may have been a nickname, but anyway, his account is really the only primary source that we have, and his book is a little bit contested. So much like Marco Polo's work, with whom some passages actually between their two books share some very suspicious similarities, scholars aren't totally sure if he actually made all of his journeys or not, or made them up. Though a lot of it does feel pretty specific to be completely made up, so I guess maybe he also could have just ripped off someone who did take these journeys, or not, not sure. But it's good to know that there is some controversy there. So part of what's interesting about this is that he refers to Urduja's land by a name that we don't recognize. It's not a name that we use today or that anyone knows like what exactly it was supposed to refer to. So it's hard to say exactly where she may have lived. Um, there's like a vague description of where he was coming from and how he got to her land. So there are a couple of options. But um, I did note that we commonly assume that it was an island in the Philippines. But there's also a reasonable theory that she was on Java. These theories suggest that Urduja might be a misspelled, misheard, or some combination of the two of those things, of a fascinating pair of Javanese historical figures. Either Waredaja, which could be a mispronunciation of Bredaha, which was a title given to Dayawiat, which literally translated apparently means Princess Vagina. Hmm, okay. But alternatively, Urduja might have been a mistranslated version of Gitarja, who was Princess Vagina's twin sister. But Gitarja is so freaking cool that I'm just going to stop right here and do a whole episode on her next time. So here's what you might want to research if you must know more. Urduja is spelled U-R-D-U-J-A. Ibn Battuta, I-B-N space B-A-T-T-U-T-A. Negrito, those are the native, some of the native peoples of the Philippines, N-E-G-R-I-T-O. Austronesian, other indigenous old school peoples who made their way to the Philippines, A-U-S-T-R-O-N-E-S-I-A-N. And I know I didn't talk about these a lot, but I included because it, it was super interesting. Like, there were <laughs> a lot of really interesting things going on in this area at these, like, super, super ancient time periods. So, anyway, the Kinalakihan. So K-I-N-A-L-A-K-I-H-A-N. This is what they called the women warriors that Orduja actually led. But like I said, I really struggled with finding out more info about them. So please let me know if you find more. Okay, I'm also going to do the, this really annoying thing and tell you an entire URL, uh, which sucks. But there is, and actually probably if you just Google a few keywords, you'll find it. But there is this freaking amazing website that takes all of Ibn Battuta's book and like matches it to a map and to wiki articles about the places on the map. And it's like all in like a grid on your screen. It's super fucking cool. So if you Google engineering historical memory and Ibn Battuta probably will come up, but you want to bear with me, uh, it's engineeringhistoricalmemory.com forward slash I-B-N-B-A-T-T-U-T-A dot 
PHP question mark PID equals and sign CID equals 617. Anyway, it's super cool. I wish they did this for all historical books. It'd be amazing. But um, that's going to be that. So have a great week and stay curious out there. Bye.